now know that there are in fact more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. You know, people keep, when you're, when you're in school, what little astronomy you get taught, one of the things they'll say is the sun is a, a normal average star. That is completely wrong. There's, there's nothing average about the sun. See, the whole point here is that if you're living just to live, just to exist, to subsist, you're not living. In other words, what makes life worth living are all these other things we can do. Relationships with people, learning about God's creation. These, to me, are just as important because otherwise all we're doing is we're, we're living and breathing and eating and procreating so that we can have kids we're going to live and breathe and procreate and what are they going to do what are they going to produce what what's the purpose of life if all we're doing is this endless cycle of making new people that don't learn about god that don't do anything king david writes in psalm 8 that when i consider thy heavens the works of thy fingers the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Do the heavens matter to us today? How can a deeper appreciation for the heavens strengthen and encourage us in our faith? This is Good Heavens, a podcast taking a deeper look into the heavens to edify and encourage believers, to exhort non-believers, and to glorify God. Ours is a distracted and hurried culture, surrounded by gadgets, screens, spectacle entertainments, and an unyielding stream of distraction online and elsewhere. It is difficult for us to imagine the value and necessity of sustained contemplation. While in graduate school in 2015, one of my professors gave us the task of going without electronics or media for a prolonged period of time. Repeatedly, students reported after the exercise, among other things, that they experienced anxiety and did not quite know what to do without their computers or cell phones. The value and necessity of sustained, undistracted contemplation is not seen as having any immediate practical value, unless, of course, one finds themselves driving past the Grand Canyon or exploring Yosemite Valley in a tour bus. What is the point in contemplating nature? What is the point in taking time to think, to listen, and to rest, to set aside our daily distractions? What use is any of it? In C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the children and Narnians are aboard the Narnian sailing ship, the Dawn Treader, and come upon a mysterious darkness looming on the horizon. The practical ship Captain Drinian wonders aloud to everyone on board, quote, but what manner of use would it be plowing through that blackness, end quote. It is then the valiant Mouse Reepicheep rebukes Drinian's pragmatism. Quote, use, Captain, if by use you mean filling our bellies and our purses, I confess it will be no use at all. So far as I know, we did not set sail to look for things useful, 
but to seek honor and adventure. And here is as great an adventure as I ever heard of. And here, if we turn back, no little impeachment of all our honors." End quote. It appears our culture has gone back, gone after filling the belly and purse, trading our inheritance for a pot of stew, giving up our treasures in the heavens for mere earthly trifles. Meanwhile, interpretations of the heavens and the earth have become predominantly secular. And when it comes to questions of the self, increasingly the science of the mind has trained our attention introspectively inward, with a myopic focus on anatomy, physiology, and psychology. But after decades of psychological introspection, the overall mental health of our culture seems to be faltering. As C.S. Lewis notes in The Weight of Glory, quote, "...the attempt to discover by introspective analysis our own spiritual condition is to me a horrible thing which reveals at best not the secrets of God's spirit and ours, but the transpositions in intellect, emotion, and imagination." and which at worst may be the quickest road to presumption or despair." But it need not be this way. The 20th century philosopher Joseph Piper, in his work Leisure as the Basis of Culture, defines leisure as a, quote, mental and spiritual attitude. It is not the inevitable result of spare time, a holiday, a weekend, or a vacation. It is, in the first place, an attitude of mind a condition of the soul, and, as such, utterly contrary to the ideal of worker in each and every one of these three aspects under which it was analyzed, work as activity, as toil, as a social function, end quote. Leisure, according to Piper, is not merely a holiday away from work. Properly understood, true leisure can be attained through any mitigating external factors, because it is finally a state of mind, not a thing you do. Quote, Leisure is a form of silence, of that silence which is the prerequisite of the apprehension of reality. Only the silent hear, and those who do not remain silent do not hear. Silence, as it is used in this context, does not mean dumbness or noiselessness. It means more nearly that the soul's power to answer to the reality of the world is left undisturbed. For leisure is a receptive attitude of mind, a contemplative attitude, and it is not only the occasion, but also the capacity for steeping oneself in the whole of creation." End quote. And it is precisely this contemplative posture of leisure we find in King David's reflection on the heavens found in Psalm 8, quote, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. One way we might be able to recapture a redemptive contemplation is through doing precisely what King David did, meditating on God's glory through the contemplative leisurely act of stargazing, becoming reacquainted with the marvels not only of what God has said, but what he has made. On this episode of Good Heavens, I talk with veteran astronomer and educator Dr. David Bradstreet, a professor of astronomy at Eastern University for over four decades. Dr. Bradstreet combines his love of astronomy with his first love, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and gives his students the tools and passion to reacquaint themselves with God's glory in the heavens. Dr. Bradstreet offers his pedagogical wisdom and insights into what contemplating the stars can do to encourage and strengthen our faith as Christians. Well, good morning, Dr. David Bradstreet. I have a binary star, so pleased to have a binary star expert with us today on Good Heavens. Good morning, Dr. Bradstreet. Thank you for joining us. Morning, Daniel. How are you doing this morning? I am waking up from a Texas uh, downpour we had last night. Uh, other than that, I'm doing great. Thank you so much. How's how's things in Eastern Pennsylvania? <clears throat> well, we are the we are the uh, COVID nineteen capital of the state. And, oh my uh, goodness! So we're all hunkered down, and uh, thank goodness for electronic means of communications. Or we're doing church. We're doing prayer groups, we're doing Sunday school, all using Zoom and online, and it's actually working out fairly well. It's not the same as being there in person, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not a bad second. Well, that's and good. I'm also teaching, uh, you know, I teach at Eastern University, and I'm doing my courses online, mm -hmm. and that seems to be going fairly well. The students aren't too crazy about it, uh, being home <laughs> alone, uh, and it actually requires more discipline from them. I and bet. if they were on campus, but I think so far so good, but we'll find out Friday. They have their first online test. Oh, so we'll and see how, we'll see how this all actually works out in practice uh, then. And I know, uh, of course, I've never been a student of yours, but I know from our correspondence over the years with the putting book together that your tests are tough. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I've been teaching at Eastern for 44 years. Mm. I'm just as tough now as I went was back in the 70s. Fantastic. And, uh, that's, I, I tell my students that, you know, that's what you're paying for. You want somebody to challenge you, and I challenge them. We have a good time. Mm -hmm. My classes are usually full, but uh, my tests are comprehensive, and you really have to master the material if you're going to do well. And they do, for the most part. You just challenge them, help them, and they usually do quite well. Fantastic. So now, have you, do you, at Eastern, are your courses uh, basic, just basic astronomy, or are you, you do graduate level or uh, uh, basic level astronomy courses, or what are what do you teach there at Eastern exactly? So from a so it's an interesting term, basic astronomy. They are what we call non science major astronomy courses, uh, but they are they are fairly rigorous. I mean, I try to stay away from the mathematics as much as I can, mm -hmm. uh, but I still have to do some. And so they're, they are made for non-science majors, but they are fairly uh, thorough courses. It's, it's, 
open for non-science majors. I have a lot of people who are astronomy minors because mm -hmm. they kind of fall in love with the material. Uh, but they really have to learn their material well. Uh, so you might call it a basic astronomy course, but in reality, uh, if I had astronomy majors, their freshman course would look very much like this. Well, so it's a uh, basic training astronomy. We it might really call it. is. And it's yeah. two semesters, one semester on solar system, one on stars and galaxies. That's awesome. I, I am, uh, I, I really, if I had a, a degree to go back and do again, I would, I'd almost want to do an undergraduate astronomy degree. That would be awesome. Well, it is a, you know, it's a very challenging major because you end up having to master astronomy and physics and mathematics and computers. And it also helps if you can speak. So, I mean, there's a lot of talents, a lot of things you have to do to become a successful astronomer. Mm -hmm. It really is challenging. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, of course, you know Carl Sagan, I'm sure, uh, that he had a, a knack for combining. Of course, he wasn't a, a, a believer, but he, he had a knack for being able to communicate uh, what he loved to talk about, which was science and planets and the universe. Exactly. And I think, I think there's a deficit. Um, it, I think you would probably agree that there's, there's a kind of a deficit in the body of Christ right now for, for the, a dedicated interest in creation it seems well, like well it's true i mean it's a you know the church has really failed when it comes to challenging its young people to go into areas that we've basically left to the secular community mm -hmm. and so this 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 false idea that there's a, a a war between science and faith um you know we, we really need to be challenging our young people to go into science and be leaders in science because it's it's not a conflict. Mm. It's really just ignorance on both sides. It's an ignorance of what science is and what it can't do. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's an ignorance of scripture and and how to interpret scripture uh, properly. Yeah. So there's, there's ignorance on both sides, uh, and I really try to make things come together that way. And, and my my students know what I believe. I'm a believer in Jesus. Mm -hmm. I know I'm going to heaven because of his death and resurrection. And so, you know, you have to deal with it. I'm a scientist. I do science. I'm, I do research. I do curriculum development uh, for planetariums. So I'm, I'm very active, uh, but I'm also a, a, a devout believer in Jesus. So it's like, well, how do you reconcile those two? For me, it's, it's just who I am. It's just not an issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like when you are... You know, you walk with Christ and you, you, you are a Christian that God gives you those abilities to synthesize and to see things more holistically, to see creation and scripture, to see how things go together. Uh, and I think it's a, a penchant of modernity that we like to categorize and separate and, you know, draw lines where this discipline doesn't talk to that discipline. And there's no way that you can reconcile uh, traditional Christian faith with uh, modern contemporary astrophysics. That's just, right. it's, it's just impossible, but it's not impossible. We have a book with people who are astrophysics, uh, astrophysicists and believers, and uh, you are one of them. And uh, I thank you so much for being a part of our story, David. It's a, it's a great chapter. I'm getting a lot of comments from people who read it and uh, they say they have to read it twice, but they enjoy it. I think you, You've pulled it. You've pulled it off. You've been able to 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 uh, to to communicate a very difficult subject in a language that I think is very understandable. And, and of course, that's when I when I was writing it, I, I tried to keep that in mind that I was you know speaking to people, many of whom had never even heard of binary stars. Yeah, 
And so I was trying to get them, get across the idea that, you know, this, this subject that you never heard of, 60% of all stars are double. You know, people keep, when you're, when you're in school, what little astronomy you get taught, one of the things they'll say is that the sun is a, a normal average star. Mm -hmm. That is completely wrong. There's, there's nothing average about the sun. <laughs> you know, the sun, first of all, is a single star, which puts it in the minority. Uh-huh. Uh, but the, if you want to talk about average stars, they're red dwarfs. Mm. You know, 75% of all stars are red dwarfs. Stars, you know, half the size of the sun are, are smaller, mm. much cooler. And they are, you know, how, how can 75% of the stars not be considered average? I mean, it's just, it's nuts. That is, that is wild. I didn't know the stat on the, on the red dwarfs. That's fascinating. Yes, they are by far the most numerous type of stars. Wow. And so the, the, on generally that they're a star that is uh, cooler, uh, red, and uh, um, smaller than our sun by about half the magnitude, half the mass. Yes, yes, and smaller. Okay. They are, they are by far. They're, you can think of them as minnows in the sea. <laughs> I mean, you've got an almost uncountable number of very small fish. Wow. The bright stars in the galaxy are the whales. The, you know, they stand yes. out. You can see them, but there aren't that many of them. Um, yes, yes. Relatively speaking. Okay, so, you know, going back to what you said earlier about, you know, education in astronomy, uh, I am have been a teacher most of my career, uh, and I know of the the medieval uh, curriculum included. So you had the trivium and the quadrivium. Mm -hmm. And so the quadrivium would be your secondary collegiate kind of coursework. But in the quadrivium, you would learn astronomy. And exactly. Exactly. The, the medieval culture, for all their faults and failures, uh, most everybody was at least mildly conversant with what was going on in the heavens. Uh, and don't, don't forget the other three, too. You had arithmetic yes. and geometry, and my favorite, music yeah and they all go together they all go together and they were, so those were the considered if you were going to be an educated person in medieval times um you really had to master those four areas absolutely and so of course now we have many more things to learn uh you know, much <laughs> more to learn yeah thanks but to our problem well but i'll tell you where the problem came in in the early uh late 1800s around 1900 they got educators together with a committee of 10 and said, develop a curriculum for the 20th century, a high school curriculum that would mm -hmm. then prepare people to go to college. Mm -hmm. And then that's when the decision was made. Uh, you can actually read the report. It's online somewhere uh, as a PDF where it talks about you don't need astronomy to go to college. Ooh. And so, and quite frankly, at that time, that wasn't such a bad decision because, you know, we didn't know what galaxies were. Mm -hmm. We didn't know anything about nuclear physics. We had no idea how stars really got their energy. Mm -hmm. We were very ignorant in 1900, uh, astronomically speaking. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so what astronomy are you going to teach in high school other than constellations and some very rudimentary facts about the solar system? So. I can see why they made that decision, but that was over a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. Seems to me we should revisit that yeah. and see that astronomy is one of the fundamental sciences, uh, along with physics and chemistry and biology, which you know everybody ends up having to take. That decision was made in around 1900. That's wow. why the, those courses are taught in high schools throughout the country, and astronomy typically is not. 
Well, I had that very experience firsthand. Um, I was at a school where I was considering taking a science position. Uh, it was a, a temporary uh, fill-in sort of thing. It was like one class. And uh, they were going to cut astronomy from the textbooks and from the lessons for the year. And I said, well, <laughs> that solidifies my decision <laughs> because I, I wanted to integrate astronomy into to the science class. But it's true, and it's kind of sad that, that, that astronomy, that the idea is one of pragmatics. What use is it? And it, and it reminded me of the quote, uh, the scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where uh, Captain Drinian, they're on the ship, and they're about to go through the dark island. And uh, Captain Drinian is like, well, what use is it going into the dark island, you know? And Reepicheep the mouse pipes up and, and rebukes him for, for just thinking pragmatically, you know? It's not about use, Captain. We're, we're not here to make money or to fill our purses. We're here for an adventure, you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> the idea that, 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 that something has to be uh, pragmatic or, or useful, and if we can't find the utility in something, that we just discard it. And I think this was Lewis's uh, chief complaint in his book, the discarded image that we've just done away with cosmology and, 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 and astronomy and our knowledge of, of the beauty and the contemplation that the heavens bring us, that, that there, there, there's no functional use. We have all of the GPS and all the knowledge we need in our little cell phones. And so what use is astronomy anymore? How would you but, answer that, Dr. Bradstreet? And of course, I get asked this question by my students pretty uh -huh. much every semester. <laughs> okay, I'm and sorry so, for asking it so, again. <laughs> no, 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 I'm glad that you did. Uh, so, so, as Jesus often did when asked questions, I asked them a question uh, first. Mm -hmm. And the question is, so what good is anything? Mm. How do you determine what's necessary and what isn't? Mm. So, you know, we'll, we'll have that talk. So we'll say, well, what what jobs are absolutely necessary? And they'll start coming up with things like farmers and doctors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are what you would call pragmatic. And then I'll say, well, so what, why? Let's just start with farmers. I mean, we can't live without farmers. Um, so they produce food so that we can eat. So then mm -hmm. I ask them the question, and why do you want to eat? Yeah. Of course, they look at me like, kind of uh -huh. a stupid question is that <laughs> do we, we want to live and so then i ask so why do you want to live mm. well then there's a silence in the room mm -hmm. and so see the whole point here is that if you're living just to live just to exist to subsist mm. you're not living right in other words what makes life worth living are all these other things we can do Mm -hmm. relationships with people, learning about God's creation, these to me are just as important because otherwise all we're doing is we're, we're living and breathing and eating and procreating so that we can have kids who are going to live and breathe and procreate. And what are they going to do? What are they going to produce? What, what's the purpose of life if all we're doing is this endless cycle of making new people that don't learn about God, that don't do anything. Well, and you look at the crisis situation in which we find our whole planet right now, and it seems like, uh, you know, the, the rush on the grocery stores and the, the depletion of toilet paper uh, kind of shows us where we're at 
as a culture in terms of what's important. You know, the, the idea that we are only concerned about consuming and surviving. That seems to be sort of the, the baseline reason for, for living is just to consume and to continue to survive and uh, to, to sort of be very self-centered and self-aware and sort of the whole universe revolves around the individual. We're very individualistic. And, uh, and, and Daniel, it, it begs the question, doesn't it? Because what, once you have enough food and clothing and so on, which almost everyone does, mm-hmm. why are people going stir-crazy? Exactly. You know, what, why are people, you know, it's like, I've got to go out and do stuff. And they start to realize that these things that are not necessary are actually, in many ways, the most necessary. Right. Otherwise, we go crazy. That's right. You know, going, out, going out and talking with people or, you know, contemplating God. And I mean, I know in our church, uh, this, this crisis has actually brought people closer together mm. and much more serious about their faith. Mm. Mm. And, and so what good is astronomy? I, I would contend that, that studying God's creation in astronomy and the tremendous tapestry that he has woven just to produce us, uh, it really gives you a perspective on God and his creation that it's difficult to get through any other science. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, and it's all around us. Right. And the more you know, uh, the more in you know, amazement you are at how tremendously both beautiful and intricate it really is. Right. Now, I, I, I came to know you through uh, Michael Ward, who came to, I think he, he met you at your school. Is that correct? Yes, he, yes he came. He has actually spoken at Eastern uh, a couple times. And uh, I, I was, uh, Michael was my thesis advisor. And uh, he came back to me and says, Daniel, you might want to meet David Bradstreet and gave me your email. And I was, I was, I was like, thank you, Michael. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, and one of the things that, that Michael has taught me while I was studying under him was, was uh, you know, etymology, the etymology of certain words. And one of them is the word, and I've, I've never forgotten this, is consider. The word consider is a, is a, uh, a word that means considerial, which means with the stars, you know, so when we consider, we think with the stars. And uh, it reminds me of the exhortation uh, of the prophet Isaiah, and uh, I think it's Isaiah forty twenty six. lift up your eyes on high and see or consider these stars, uh, you know, who made these stars. And not one of them is missing. God calls them all by name. And I think and, and what I do and what I enjoy, and as you know this, you've done it all your life, is is stargazing just out in my backyard here in Texas. Um, I, I long for the clear nights when I can go out with the telescope and go out in the backyard and just sit in the lawn chair and contemplate, just look and gaze and think and calm down and, and, and appreciate the, and meditate in a Christian way, in a God-honoring way, contemplating the glory of God that's above me. It's star by star. It's really wonderful. Isn't it, isn't it amazing when you consider, let me tell you the story of Abraham. Yeah. Abraham, uh, God had a, a, obviously a, a mission for him. Mm-hmm. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. I love that verse. Uh, and so 
he, Abraham's like, you know, well, I don't have any kids here. I, you know, I don't know what, <laughs> this is nuts. But if you look at it objectively, if you look at it in the context of ancient belief, mm. you can only see about 7,000 stars in the entire sky that mm. are visible to the eye. The mm. ancients had no concept of how many stars there actually were. In fact, we didn't know how many stars there actually were in the universe till about 1930. Yeah, Hubble. Yeah, so the interesting thing is that, so Abraham goes his merry way and starts doing what God wants him to do. He doesn't always do it well. But when he did have Isaac, and God said, no, I'm, I, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him to me. And, and Abraham, by this time, was an old man and had learned to, to trust and obey God. Mm. And, of course, he was going to sacrifice Isaac, and, and God sent an angel to stay his hand and provided, of course, the ram as a substitutionary uh, sacrifice, as an mm. archetype of Jesus. But the interesting thing is what God said next. He, he said, you know, I'm so pleased with what you've done mm. that I'm, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars and of the grains of sand on the seashore. Mm. Now, he didn't say that at first, but he said it this time. And so he's saying, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the grains of sand on the seashore. Now, think about that for a second. To the ancient mind, that must have sounded like God was tremendously drunk. <laughs> that he, in other words, he's comparing, I'm going to give you, it's like saying, I'm going to give you $1,000 or $100 trillion. Mm. And it's like those two, those numbers don't they don't compare at all. Yeah. And yet now in modern times, again we're talking 1930, 1940. Yeah. We now know that there are in fact more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. That's a fantastic point, Dr. Bradstreet. The the idea to an ancient that stars aren't that much. I mean, I can see there's a lot in the sky above me, but you're comparing stars to sand. I mean, come on, there's got to be more sand on the ground than there are stars in the sky. Come on. And, and now it's the other way around. We know that. it's the other way around. And so, you know, and this is people say, well, but the ancient people, they knew there were lots of stars. No, they did not. Hmm. It wasn't until Galileo looked at the Milky Way through his telescope that they actually proved that the Milky Way, you know, haze yes. uh, was actually individual stars. Well, that was in the 1600s. Wow. But it wasn't until 1930 that we actually knew that other galaxies besides the Milky Way existed. Yeah, I remember I, I talked about this uh, this past summer when our book came out. I did eight weeks of creation and for Sunday school at my church. Um, we take kind of take a Sunday school hiatus in the summertime. And so pastor asked me to uh, to fill in. He's like, every week, he's like, you want to do it again? You want to do another week? You <laughs> so I ended up doing it for eight weeks. <laughs> but uh, I told the story in one week. I told the story of of Edwin Hubble's sort of uh, tentatio with uh, with uh, uh, Harlow Shapley. Now Harlow was, as you probably know, Harlow had a theory that that the Milky Way was the universe, basically that that's yeah. all there was, and that galaxies, what what Hubble was, what they were calling at the time were nebulae, clouds, basically like uh, celestial clouds, uh, and Shapley believed that those clouds were in the Milky Way, and Hubble's like, well, I'm not so sure. And so it was actually Hubble on the 100-inch hooker at Mount Wilson in California who was studying plates, who found uh, V1, the variable star in Andromeda, uh, that made him realize 
that Andromeda was a galaxy like the Milky Way. And so he writes a letter to Shapley and says something like, Shapley, you'll be pleased to know I found a variable. I found a Cepheid and, and all this. And then Shapley's reply is, here is the letter that destroyed my universe. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we have the Hubble Space Telescope and not the Shapley Space Telescope, perhaps. I don't know. Um, yeah, but Shapley, Shapley was the great astronomer in his own right. He, he really was. He really, really was. I, I don't mean I to under... Was, Hubble was really rubbing it in his face. His yeah, body, he was. He wasn't the nicest guy. No, no. And so, but that's an a, a kind of an testament to, to, to the mind of Shapley, to the, the, the kind of intention uh, and attention that people paid to to the universe and and now that seems like david that that kind of attention is 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 really relegated to the hands of of specialists and and very few of us can pay that much attention to to creation let alone the stars yet uh, people love astronomy no. and yet yeah exactly and 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 yet here you are you know there's there's a core group of people that you Semester after semester, you get interested in this discipline, um, and, it, and it's fascinating. Yeah, my students' reaction almost and always, except you know, you're too hard. Uh, <laughs> their reaction is basically, "Why did no one ever tell us about this before?" Mm. Much, most of what we discuss, they have never heard of before mm. at all. I mean, we're talking at least ninety percent of what I teach is completely new and they just have never heard of this before and in addition to that much of what they were taught is wrong mm. Mm. You know, they don't really understand why we have seasons or what's going on with the phases of the moon and i mean we're talking first second grade level material yeah and it's just it's not typically conveyed in a way that's correct mm -hmm. or lasting yeah yeah i find that uh I share, uh, you know, I, one of my fun things to do, I love to look at constellations and find star names. And um, uh, I, I like to pay attention to, to the ecliptic, the apparent motion of the sun in the sky and, and the planets. And uh, people will sometimes ask me on Twitter, is this a planet? Or, uh, or think that the, the Pleiades is the Little Dipper or something. Yes. And, and just, the, just the basic, just, just a basic, I'm going to go out my backyard, I'm going to name, be able to name the, the five or six brightest stars in the sky. When I share people with that, they look at me sideways like, well, that's weird. Why do you even sort of bother knowing star names? Um, it, 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 just, it just is perceived as kind of esoteric or, or I, I get a lot of, well, you're just dabbling in astrology, right? Yeah. If you, if you <laughs> <laughs> so yes. I find that in, in, my, in my research as a layperson, what I've encountered in conversations with Christians either is, well, astronomy, astrophysics is, is just like a hard science and it's all secular and I don't pay attention to that. I don't, I'm not good at math. Or it's like, well, you're dabbling in astrology. You, 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 you don't want to do that because, you know, it leads into the occult and witchcraft and don't say the word zodiac. And it, it seems to be, and then, then if you find Christians that, that are interested in the universe, usually it's just sort of a syllogistic apologetic uh, argument it's not really a, an intrinsic knowledgeable in-depth appreciation for the cosmos it's just like here's a why is there something rather than nothing or the kalam and so there's there's not a kind of knowledge that you present out there widespread uh as it was you know in the medieval times where a large part of the populace was conversant about well, at least those at least those who um you know, went to higher education, which of course was a small number mm. in those days. 
I would say to people when they, when, if they would say that to you about why learn the stars, I would just turn it back to them and say, do you know what kind of trees these are? Right. Why are you learning the different types of trees? How is that pragmatic? Yeah, the, 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 the idea is fundamentally that's a waste of time. Um, and, and so now here we are in a, in a sort of a global crisis where we, all the things that we normally are engaged with have been taken away. And we are now faced with, I, I'm hearing social media people are bored out of their minds. I'm like, how can you be bored? <laughs> how can you be bored? I mean, I, I stargaze, I read books, I put together podcasts. My, my job at Watchman Fellowship is phenomenal. I get to do these interviews. This is my job now. Um, I, I'm, I'm del I delight in the slow contemplative life, you know, reading and thinking about what authors have written uh, taking time to contemplate. And I think, and, and maybe you'll agree here, that, that, that contemplating the cosmos is like, uh, is like slow food, right? It takes time. You, yeah. you, you, there's preparation that goes into it. There's thought that goes into it. And it's, it, it's not instantaneous, you know? And it, and, it, and it gives you that ability to be patient. Uh, it gives you the ability to, to endure. Uh, it gives you the, impatient, the ability to observe. And it really does sort of, it always calms me down. It always just settles me to be able to just it's go a out. a very back. good point. And, you know, it, it's, it's, you can use that frame of mind for anything. In other words, yeah. if you go to an art museum and you don't know anything about art, you'll probably walk through the walls and say, well, that one's pretty. Well, right. that's stupid looking. What, yeah. how, how is that? You know, in other words, your ignorance will not allow you to appreciate what's actually going on. If you knew the artist and what they were going through when they painted it, right. you know, what was the, what was going on in their culture at that time? It's, mm. it's true of anything. The more you get into something, the more you appreciate it. I mean, yeah. I use that with my students, with Jesus and scripture. When you bump into people who don't care to talk about the Bible or talk about Jesus, typically they know very little of anything. Mm -hmm. about what scripture actually says and what Jesus actually said and did. Right. It's a, so to know Jesus is to love him. And, and I really think, you know, I think that's true for most people as well. Yeah. And, and my uh, co-host Wayne and I just did an, uh, 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 an episode on a part one of an episode uh, on scripture, the, the scriptural account of God's creation of the universe. And, um, uh, I, we were discussing the very point that it's not just looking at a physical object like a star or a planet. It's understanding that God has woven his glory into the fabric of everything that he has made. Uh, he uses the lilies with Solomon and he says, that, you know, not even Solomon and all of his glory was arrayed like a lily, you know, and there's a, there's a, uh, a glory in the stars, the, the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Psalm 111.2 says that, uh, that we delight to look into the, the, the works that God has created. And so it's not just looking for material causes, but the creation is filled with God's prophetic glory, that it all points to Christ. I think it's Colossians, that all things were created by him and for him. And so when you contemplate the cosmos, it's like the two books. I think it's Galileo, right? That the, the yeah. one book of creation and the one book of scripture. And, and we're kind of, as a culture, we're kind of ignorant of both. And uh, 
and what fascinates me about what you do, David, is, is just the wonder of which, how you can bring those two books together in such a seamless kind of like a symphony. And the, your students are like, wow, I never saw the synthesis of these things before. And so I think that's, that's phenomenal uh, to be able to, even though it's a small amount, to be able to, to get people to see that synthesis of, of how creation and scripture can inform one another. It really is amazing. And you can take it down to the other arena. If you go into atomic physics in the quantum realm, it's just as mind-blowing. Mm. Uh, you know, if you get into things that are just like, they're, they're beyond science fiction in a way. You know, that, that there's a possibility, for example, that an atom from the Andromeda galaxy could just pop into existence in your room. <laughs> it's like, what, in the, what what but that <laughs> the probability of that happening is small but not zero yeah it's almost as if god has set up all these laws and yet he can still do anything and not break any of them well the fascinating thing for me when i stargaze uh whether i'm seeing uh i just saw uh m51 uh which m the messier for those that don't know the m designation and the 51 is a is a list of wonderful objects that charles messier uh put together uh in the late 1800s as he was looking for comets he'd run into these fuzzy objects and then put them on the list and says this is not an object this is not a comet but they actually turn out to be some of the most beautiful things in the universe and so m51 is near the big dipper and it's a, a galaxy pair if i'm correct it's a whirlpool yeah. with a little baby galaxy next to it that looks like it came out of it or is interacting with it I saw that on the telescope, and I don't know exactly how many light years away it is, but what, what is always amazing to me is that I'm looking back in time in through the telescope, and these photons from these galaxies are literally entering my eye, like a, like a, a light particle from these distant worlds is literally entering my eye uh, from the past. And it's, it's, it reminds me of God's imminence and his transcendence when I do that. I'm looking at ancient light, but that ancient light is in me. You know, and it reminds me of God's, you know, his ancient wisdom, his ancient light indwelling us as well. And so there's that metaphor that I always think about. Wow, Lord, you know, the stars seem far away, but yet they're right in my eyes. You know, they're right here. They're right up there, but they're right here as well. And I, I love to think about it that way. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Daniel Ray, your host. On part two of my conversation with Dr. Bradstreet, we get into the nuts and bolts and talk at length about his specialty, binary stars, and all the wonderful and glorious science of how a majority of the stars in our universe have a companion. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. 
The Story of the Cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. For Good Heavens, I'm Dave Mitchell.